Um, great to be here with you. Pastor Mark is at our Collingswood campus this morning, and so we did a little swap. And I got to tell you, it's a little weird um, coming here after not like being here on a Sunday morning in a while with this right here. Now, all, many of you are familiar, have been here the last few weeks, and you know that this is a setup as a part of the nativity. This is the Garden of Eden. But when you first come and you're not really, uh, you know, haven't been in this room a lot, you think, like, what does this look like? And I was just sitting down there thinking, what does this look like to me? And I, I came up with, it looks like a giant mouth eating lettuce. Can you see it? So it is my privilege, with the background of this ghostly, ghastly mouth, to preach to you all. Um, that has nothing to do with anything. But um, we, it's, it's great to be with you. I love doing Christmas sermons. I, I believe the time of Advent is just such a special time. Um, it has communicated to me uh, the complete love of God, many different ways and many different occasions. Um, we're going to be reading in Matthew 5, 2. But I want, I, I would, if I was a normal person, I think what I would wonder is, what's it like to be in seminary? Like, right? Like, what do you guys do? Do you, like, get graded on how you pray? Or, like, what happens? You know, like, what do seminarians do? And one of the things you do in seminary is, is you tell your story, tell your testimony and those kind of things. And actually, my, my undergrad, I had a professor, and I cannot remember his name. I, all I remember is he looked like Fozzie Bear, and he was really kind. But he, would, he was a missions professor, and, and in missions, he, so he had us work on uh, our testimonies. And he would actually grade your testimony, which seems a little weird, because it sort of seems like he's grading God. But you, so you tell your story, but he would actually mark you down and, and if it wasn't juicy enough. He'd be like, hey, make this part a little more juicy. He'd be like, that's what happened, though, right? So anyway, I, I guess with not that juicy of a testimony, went all the way to seminary, had to write out my story, and spent a long time writing out the story, deeply meaningful to me, how God changed my entire life, how the reality of God changed me. And, I, and we broke up into groups of four. This really happened. I still remember the room. We're in groups of four, and then we share with one another. And I don't know about you, but it is an honor to hear somebody's life story intentionally told. And I had written this out. I am reading my life in front of these three other people. I am crying currently as I am reading this. Two people are looking at me very sympathetically. The other one, this is not a lie, fell asleep. <laughs> In a group of four, I put somebody to sleep with my testimony. Not juicy enough. Well, when we come to the Christmas story, the Christmas story has enough juicy things to keep us awake. There's a lot of incredible things stuffed into the early part of the Gospels about this story that really keep us going. First, we why? Why the Christmas story? Well, that's built throughout the entire Old Testament. It's, it's punctuated by Jesus telling it himself of why that he came. He came to win back those who have gone astray. And why did he come? Why, I'm, I'm sorry, when? When did he come? He came after 400 years of silence, harking back to 400 years of silence before the deliverance from Egypt by Moses. Now, 400 years later, or 400 years in this section of 
finally, the coming of Christ, the Pax Romana, which is the decree of Rome to make all the roads go from Rome. And they said all roads lead to Rome. The civilization had never known communication like at the time when Jesus came because all of these roads were built, so all of these towns were connected. So by the time the gospel gets on the move, it goes all over through the roads of Rome and spreads into the entire world. The when, I skipped the what, right? The what of he came, he, what did it mean to, to, to those in Israel, the coming of the Messiah, the long-awaited king? Actually, yesterday I was in uh, Bethlehem, or no, Friday. I've been wet yesterday. Friday, I was in Bethlehem with my uh, five-year-old son. And we, he wanted, his name is Solomon, but he wanted a biblical name or something. I'm like, well... Okay, so we went with David. And so I said, David, come. And he called me Father, because that just sounded very Old Testament-y or something. And he's, Father, come get this bread. And he decided, Father, I don't want you to call me David. I want you to call me Messiah the Jesus. <laughs> and I thought, this is not going well. Anyway, so the coming of the Messiah was coming. That is the what, but not only for the Messiah, right? The angel declares it will be good news for all people. This gospel was great news and came at this moment on Christmas. How? Through the virgin birth. It says in um, uh, Galatians 4, when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a virgin. Right? The virgin birth is, is the collision of man and God. Without, with the fullness of God and the fullness of man through the story of the virgin birth. And then, of course, the who. The son, the sacrifice, the lamb, the perfect child. No imagery ignored. The prophet, priest, and king coming as the great redeemer of all people, the incredible story of all of God stuffed in a manger, the story of Christmas is so intentional. But there's one more. What questions left from up there? Where? Oh, thank you. I, I thought I'd have to bail you out. There is where? That's where we find this morning. Micah 5.2 says this, and we know this from Nativity, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. In this story, here's my contention, the story that is so intentionally scripted, seemingly... One of the most sloppy and unimportant points of emphasis in the Christmas story is where. And you can't say, well, it's because it wasn't really important, the Christmas story. No, it's talked about a lot in there. Angels like in the town of David, it's all this, and Bethlehem. And we have continued that tradition in song and in, in poetry and in preaching. We talk about Bethlehem a lot. It is a point of emphasis. However... At first, second, and third glance, I would argue that it is one of the seemingly most sloppy and unimportant points of emphasis that we have. Pray with me as we dive into Bethlehem this morning and ask the question, why Bethlehem? Lord, your love is better than our very lives, better than the mechanisms of control. 
better than the amount of pain and confusion we walk into this room with. We pray as we look into this small town and ask what I believe has, is a very important theological question. Just let us understand you. We are a people who have tried so many different ways to be right, to be whole. And we come to you and again ask, show us your way again. In Jesus' name, amen. Why Bethlehem? And this whole sermon is less of a sermon and more of one long question we're going to get to. But Bethlehem is what led me to this question. And as uh, I, I've been wrestling over in looking at this. So, but if we look at Bethlehem, why Bethlehem? First, Bethlehem was not chosen for its strategic location. It wasn't physically strategic. It's, it's a suburb, five and a half miles, that appears to be outside of Jerusalem. It's a little ways outside of Jerusalem, but doesn't hold like lots of, it's not like you have to go through Bethlehem to get to Jerusalem. Physically located on the map, it's not that important. It's not uh, strategic in the sense of like all the water runs there. And so this is the, as far as the way the land works, that this is actually the most important location that if this place doesn't exist, then other things can't happen in the land of Israel. It's not spiritually strategic. It does not have a significant place in the story outside of the Christmas story. Now, there is, this is the town of David, right? This is where David was born. But if you will remember the story of David is a long story about obscurity too, right? In the story of David, the Old Testament puts very little emphasis on David being from Bethlehem. And in the whole story of David's being raised, it's showing that he was kind of just a forgotten person. So, while there was connection to David, it's not like all the kings came through Bethlehem. It's not like all the significant moments that were happened or battles fought or walls coming down were in Bethlehem. Spiritually speaking, there is very little about the significance of Bethlehem. Secondly, Bethlehem was not chosen for its potential, not for its strategic location and not for its potential. The text itself says it in this prophecy, right? And this, and this prophecy is given centuries before uh, the coming of Christ and is saying this and it would come true that this would continually be Bethlehem's legacy. But you, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah... This is a suburb in the shadow of Jerusalem. And you're like, well, see, that's the whole point. It's that it's the smallest, it's the dirtiest, it's the poorest, it's the most thieving, it's all of these things. It's not really that. It doesn't really appear to be that in the New Testament. It's small. It it's, it's, has some reputation of some thieves. But it's not standing out as, this is the worst of the worst. So Jesus came to the very worst place he ever could come. It's another small town in a nation of Israel among the suburbs of the great city of Jerusalem. It wasn't really going anywhere, was not on the rise, not even the worst of the worst. Because if it were the worst of the worst, it would have been juicy. But it wasn't even that. Lastly... Oh, I already... Third, I don't think I got this in my PowerPoint. Sorry about that. It's this. Bethlehem was chosen because God keeps his promises, 
right? We have this prophecy in Micah. The Messiah is going to come in this location. So why did he come in that location? Because God promised that he would come in that location, and God keeps his promises. But that's really the only reason that we're given. We don't know why that place was chosen to be the promised location. We just know God promised it. And then we see this again in the declaration of the angels. Today in the town of David fulfilling the prophecy. But why was that prophecy chosen to begin with? What, how did this make Christmas that much more significant? How did this push the story along? So I wrestle, I'm going to tell you why I wrestled with this particular town, um, this. And this is the question that I want, I want to ask us this morning. And I don't want you to be too quick to mentally answer this, because I think this question has a, a lot of theological ramifications. But here's the question. Does God waste his love? And, and I want to tell you why. As I looked at Bethlehem, this text, I remembered uh, last year I had a chance to go to Israel and totally was given an opportunity I didn't deserve and with a bunch of other pastors, got a chance to go around Israel, saw so many different things. And in Israel, you like literally can't put your toe in the ground without touching history. I mean, it is an incredible place. We stopped by this hotel, among things, and there's this giant hotel, and then right besides this hotel, they have this excavation site because they're building foundation for a broader hotel. And oh, by the way, while they were excavating to build the foundation, they found a town. Because that's what you do in Israel. History is buried everywhere. And then they unearth the town. They realize, okay, I guess we can't put the hotel edition here. So they're putting the hotel edition here. Because this town appears to be one of the small towns, the little enclaves where Jesus came into the synagogues to actually preach. They're digging to put in a renovation on a hotel. And they find where Jesus is talking. This is all over Israel. There's history everywhere. It's a really small place, and you just go from sight to sight, and your mind is blown. But I remember driving by on a, on a day we weren't talking about history. We were more learning more Palestinian-Israeli uh, conflict about the wall and all of these different things. We were finding historical background, all this stuff. And in that context, they, we drove by a place. They said, oh, that's Bethlehem without Anything else? Giant fence around it. Not a lot of Christian presence there. Nothing that spectacular about it. That's just Bethlehem. And I thought to myself, wait, wait a minute. That's, that's the story, right? And it was the most dissonant thing for me to happen in Israel about the significance of a place. Because then, but also now, the place is listed as somewhat forgettable. It's smaller than the town we're in right now, Mount Laurel, one high school town. It's smaller than that. It's about the third the size of Cherry Hill. And that's, and it's currently growing. It's not at a time where it's doing the most poorly. It's not a city, never really has been a city. 
Um, it's, it's in a lot of conflict and turmoil and has been for decades. There are three people groups that are vying for power and fighting within the city, and that's more what it's known for than anything of spiritual significance, at least within the region. And I look at that, and I think, no, 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 Bethlehem's so important, right? Why? Was we passed by, but why did God choose to be there if he knew nothing was really going to happen here? It felt like God got no return on this investment, that God was so intentional here, but made so little difference. This does not sound like a redemptive story to tell of such a turmoiled city, then the Messiah came, and now look, it's become the capital of no. It's not you should have seen Bethlehem before it became the birthplace of God because honestly it hasn't really changed all that much since. So it's simply done this theological reflection. Did God kind of waste his love on Bethlehem or is that something God can even do? Can God create waste? And so um, went through some of the New Testament, just struggling with text. Does God... Waste love. Here are some texts that I wrestled with. Story of the lepers in Mark chapter 140. Jesus goes and he says, he heals these lepers. They come before him and he says, okay, guys, I'm healing you. I'm literally changing the trajectory of your entire life for you and for your families. My one request is just keep this between us for now. You are healed, but just keep this from us, between us. Immediately they took off and told everyone. They were still healed, but yet didn't become more obedient to Christ. Another story of lepers in Luke 17. Jesus says, go show yourself to the priests. And the lepers, ten lepers go before the priests. And they show them, and they become clean. Ten of them, life change, trajectory change. They see the power of God displayed in a way that blows their minds. Nine of them go about their life. One of them returns to thank Jesus. Think, well, you only got 10% on that one, right? I guess you got a tithe of the lepers, but like nine out of the 10 lepers went away without even coming back to say thank you. Story of the feeding of the 5,000, which was actually more than 5,000 when you count all the people that were there. How cool would it have been, right? This is, this is how I would write the story. The story of 5,000, there's got two little fish, five pieces of bread, and you break them up, and Jesus miraculously does this. And right at the end, they've got a small piece of bread and a little fish left. They don't know what to do with it. Then they realize one small, cute little girl came up and said, I haven't eaten anything, and then said, yes, this last bit is for you. Come on, Hallmark Channel. That's a beautiful ending. Right? What happened though? After the end, there's all kinds of food left over. And Jesus said, okay, let's get some baskets and, and haul this food up. What, was Jesus a little inexact in his counting? Did he think that guy could handle some more calories than he could? Like, like why extra? Is that, is that waste? Story of Judas. This one's probably one of the most difficult characters in the New Testament. Luke chapter 9 says that Judas was anointed with the gift of preaching the gospel and that he had the power and authority of the kingdom of God. 
God wrapped up this incredible message of love that would change the world, and he handed it to 12 people to say, go, start telling people about it. And one of them was Judas, who would betray Jesus, who at no point in the Gospels shows us any sense that he had any interest in God's love at all. And he is one of the 12 chosen preachers to carry the message. And you say, well, the story kind of worked out. Yes, Jesus could have gotten on that cross without Judas. That was designed. Why? Does God waste his love? Why did he waste it on the story of Judas and the story of the cross where Jesus is hanging on two pieces of wood. He looks out into a crowd that's eating, that's talking, that's laughing, that, that is seeing this as, as a party or social event. And, and as he's heaving on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the human inside of you wants to say, Jesus, they don't care. And he knows that. And he's pouring his love over people who are more interested in lunch. Why does God waste his love? Does God, is this truly wasted? I had, I had friend, a lunch with a friend who's much smarter than me. And uh, I was talking about this. I'm telling him, wrestling with. And, and, and he said this, this statement on economic theory. He said this. Well, Ben... All economic theory is based on scarcity. To which I responded, duh. I mean, who doesn't know that? So as he unpacked that to make it into smaller words, saying that whenever we're talking about resources uh, and dealing out resources, the whole nature of what dealing with that well is based on the fact that there's a limited supply. This makes sense, right? Economy is gaining and distributing resources, money, goods, natural resources, people capital. And when we debate in government, like, well, the best way is to give, to give more resources to the government and then they can fairly distribute to some. And other people say, no, we need to keep more resources to ourselves and we can more fairly keep it out. And I know none of you have ever had those kind of discussions. But what we all agree on at every side is the fact that there's a limited amount of resources, so we must use them well. We say it's economically smart when we get a dollar's worth of a dollar's expense. With our limited money, we want to get the most or highest quality we possibly can. We say to one another, don't waste your time because it's limited. Don't waste your money. Don't waste your effort. Don't waste your energy because we recognize we're dealing with limited supply. Okay. And a working economy, right, is one that tries to produce as much resources as they expend and to eliminate the amount that is wasted. In God's economy... God setting up a new rule on earth, thy kingdom come, setting up a new kingdom. The most precious resource in the way that God has written this world into being, the most precious resource is his love and his care. Based on this theory that in God's economy, his love and care are the greatest resource, God would want to then spend his love and compassionate energy in that which would make the most impact. It would be unethical of God 
to use his love and allow it to go to waste when there are so many other situations that could utilize it better. So God, in his wisdom's goal with that resource would be to reduce the amount of love wasted, reduce giving it to the people who will waste it the most, and spend it on the most juicy parts so that then, by God's grace, we raise the greatest story. His love gets the greatest return. Anybody ever heard of, um, uh, I think it's a video, Etau? It's probably in our library. It's, it's a story of a tribe in Papua New Guinea. So meaningful to me. Um, me. Meaningful to several pastors here, actually. It's this old film of a missionary. They go to uh, Papua New Guinea, and they filmed a lot of this. And they go, and, and they realize they have no concept of the gospel. No concept of this Jesus story, right? Coming completely fresh. So they come in, they say, we want to tell you, tell you the story. And they start in, in Genesis and creation about how God created and designed the world, what he created it to be like, and then eventually of, of what happened, that, that the world got broken, and now there's pain, disease, fear, insecurity, shame, fighting, all of these things as a part of this brokenness. And they eventually tell the whole story of God till they get to our Jesus and they tell how Jesus came to be the restoration, to stand in the gap, that he came on Christmas to ultimately die on the cross for us. And by the time they fully explain the gospel to these people, they go bananas. This tribe in Papua New Guinea is cheering and chanting and lifting the missionaries on their shoulder, right? Like they are so actually lifting them up, running around the village because Jesus rose again and changed everything for all time. And for me, it's one of the reasons I fell in love with wanting to tell people about Jesus. It's like this incredible moment. Well, after college, I went and I was a youth pastor in an incredibly rich town and I told that story of Jesus lots and lots of times. But I didn't always get that return on the investment. So many different uh, specialists was for the wealthy youth group I was in. I remember one girl, she, was, she had 11 different specialists for different things. Um, and they had lots of different privileges. The church um, that I was in had, had tons of conflict. And I, and I had to ask, is this... Am I, is God wasting his time here? Am I wasting my time here? Three of, I've already buried three of the students um, from that time. One of the rest of them, he's in contact with me all the time. His brain is fried out from the drugs he's done. And just, it wasn't etal, right? It wasn't great return on investment. Had to ask the question, what difference am I really making? Is this a waste? of my life, and of God's love. Okay, secondly, our whole view of every resource is based on this view. But lastly, what about this? What if the resource of God's love was not limited? What if the resource of God's love was an infinite supply Psalm 136, 1 and 2. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Jeremiah 31, 3. The Lord appeared to him from afar off saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. A love that doesn't knock up against any type of boundary. Romans 8, 
I'm convinced that neither death, life, angels, demons, present, future, nor any powers, neither height or depth, or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Ephesians 3, I love this passage because Paul, is, you can just see him writing this letter pleading. He says this, I pray, this is a prayer, that the, out of his glorious riches, he might strengthen you with power, right? So we're talking about divine power through his spirit in your inner being. He says this, I pray that you being rooted and established in love, again, may have power. You need God power for this, that you may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp, to simply get it, to grasp how high and how deep how long and how wide is the love of Christ and to know that this love surpasses knowledge. His great prayer was for them to realize this resource of God's love is unlike any resource you have ever humanly known. I do believe that much of God's love goes wasted. I believe that much of God's love has gone wasted on me. Much of God's love goes unnoticed. When he moves, we often label it finally and ask why not more. When he gives his best gifts, we sometimes take it for granted and chalk it up to coincidence. When he offers a better way of life out to his love, we often choose quicker ways of, of, of our own idols or, or lesser things. When he gives us a relationship with him, that union, we often spurn it for our own power or pride. We say we rather have a forbidden fruit than all the gifts that come from his love. Much of God's love goes wasted. But that does not mean it is gone. It does not mean it has even diminished this is not a doled out, scant resource among the thirsty. There is abounding living water. There is overflows of bread. There is love spent freely, extravagantly into Bethlehem when and when it does not seem to make a difference. There is leftover love for doubting Thomas, for denying Peter, for betraying Judas. We are so used to, all of us, right, are used to limited love we're heading into Christmas season, and the Christmas season is such a collision of joy and sorrow. And the people in this room that, like, it's, it's just beautiful. You love Christmas, and you're looking forward to it, and it's all filled with just these good feelings. That is wonderful. There are some of you that are so used to looking for love at this time of year and just feeling like there's just not enough for me. There's not enough love to heal my family. There's not enough love to be able to provide what I would want to for my kids. There's not enough love to fix my relationship with my spouse. And the holidays, just so much fighting. We're so used to love being in short supply. This is what Jesus meant when he brought a whole new kingdom. We call this the upside down world. The whole different way of operating, a whole different economy, one that is built out of abundance, one that is built out of extra, one where there is enough to go around, one where love from God is boundaryless. 
I do believe God's love is on purpose. I don't believe it's a reckless shotgun that misses its mark and hits its mark sometimes. But I really do also believe that God intentionally, extravagantly pours his love such that even though it often goes wasted, it is lavished nonetheless. A couple things from this small town question. First, Bethlehem gives us perseverance to believe in his love for us perseverance to believe in his love for us, all of us, right? We're so used to to, um, rationing resources and and we're used to being limited. It's part of what being human is, right? You think you're not limited? Okay, try not sleeping for three days, you know? Go on a water strike, right? We learn that we have a lot of things where we are limited human beings. Try to love people and you'll find out how limited you are quickly, right? And this is just something. We are not of endless supply. So our natural way of then looking at God's love is that it is also limited. Our natural view is that God's love is always weaker than it is. This is why Paul says, I'm not going to just tell you about his love. I'm going to pray that you actually have power from God himself just for you to get how incredibly boundaryless that it actually is. For you and for me, I know a lot of times it feels like, well, I've used up my fair share of God's love, had my chances, used it, abused it, and then I almost somehow have this weird feeling of like, I'll just kind of let God stay over there for a while because he probably doesn't want to be with me, but maybe his love will respawn somehow, and after a while then I can kind of come back to him and get some more love and see if I can use that more responsibly. There are those of you here who, who don't quite know what you're doing in a church. Believe you're on the naughty list of God and your best bet is to do something better so maybe you can get his concern and care for you next time. There's a, a missionary who uh, came and talked at a church I was at. His name was Mickey, so he was already pretty cool. Had an Irish accent, so that's the full Monty right there. You don't get cooler than that. And he tells a story, uh, I guess he was in Dublin, and he was, and he was uh, speaking on a, on, a, on a, he's like a street preacher or something. And uh, a woman comes up to him, he starts talking, and he says to the woman, he said, hey, do you believe God loves the world? She says, yeah, I really do. He said, how about this? You think God loves all the people in Ireland? You know, you know the Irish. He says, yeah, I believe God does. How about all these people in Dublin? There's all kinds of people here. Believe God loves all these people? She said, yes, I do. He said, how about on the street, people you can actually see, make eye contact with, all of these. You think God loves all of these? She said, yes. And he looked at her and said these words, do you believe that God loves you? You know what she said? She said, I don't know. Right? Because so intimately are we acquainted with our own insecurities, our own problems, our own failings, our own places of shame and falling short. We're so intimately acquainted with them. It seems like, well, maybe in principle, all the way there, but I'm not quite sure his love is big enough to reach all the way to me. He has not run out of his love for you. Bethlehem teaches that if you have been invested with so much love and been made so much a part of his incredible story and you didn't really do much of it, 
You didn't diminish his love at all. Quote from an author says this, a familiar story is of a newborn baby homecoming um, and illustrates an implanted memory. A newborn's precocious four-year-old sibling tells her parents, I want to talk to my new brother alone. The parents put their ears to the nursery door and hear the little girl saying to the baby brother, quick, tell me who made you. Tell me where you came from. I'm beginning to forget. The baby represents the little ones Jesus praises, the innocent children who know their belovedness and union with God. The four-year-old represents most of us, caught in between knowing and forgetting and wanting to know again. In the complexity of life's journey, we all begin to forget. It grows harder and harder to remember our original identity in God. Many of, our, many of us experience a crisis of meaning and hope that keeps us scrambling for external power, perks, and possessions, trying to fill the void. I believe with every part of my life that there are two forces at work in our world, in our universe. I really do believe this. One is God's love. And what flows from God's love is true identity, true happiness, true freedom, true mission, true love for other people, true, true forgiveness and repentance, true self and understanding and accepting of who God has made us to be, true death to self, of, of, of the, the death of that which needs to go, that all of this flows from the increase of understanding and fathoming the depth and width and breadth and height of the love of God. I believe that force is one, and I believe there's the other force, which is everything else, that says this, that, that there is something better. Believe this is idolatry, saying, oh, honestly, this love's good, but I think this would advance me more. It would please me more. This is moralism, right? Like, yes, I can be in the love of God, but look at all the good things I've done. I'd rather have my identity a little soaked in that. It's materialism, believing that stuff is a little bit better than love, and it is spiritual warfare, you want to know scripturally what the, what, what the devil continues to whisper? What he whispered all the way since the garden is this. This love isn't that good. It's not that real. It's not really for you. I've got some secret something over here that's actually a little better. Where the message of Christmas, the message of scripture is that God's love, what does it say in Psalm 63.3? That God's love is better than life. God's love is better than all the whispers that might deem it unimportant or irrelevant to you. And it lasts far beyond your belief in it. Um, secondly and lastly, Bethlehem gives us perseverance to love when there is little in return. It's a 94... Maybe 95, not super young, uh, year old woman named Jane Hurt. It's one of my heroes. Uh, Jane Hurt and I, I got to know a guy in Collingswood, uh, lived on the streets in Collingswood, and um, got to know him really well. 
and uh, been with him, helped him out in a lot of different ways. Uh, really sweet guy uh, with a lot of, lot of struggles, a lot of things in his journey, and, and a lot of steps forward and steps backwards, has endured a ton of abuse in his world, and to know him is to love him, is to hurt for him, but to work with him can drive you bananas. And it's like you just keep trying to pour love, and there are times when he, he calls, and I probably should answer, and just like, I cannot take this anymore. My love has run out. And I've worked with this guy for probably three or four years, he, and he, right now he's doing, doing a little better. He's gotten a good place, and there's some good things happening. But all along knowing him, I had the privilege of knowing through him this woman named Jane Hurt, who has known this guy since he was a child, knew his family, and has taken care of him so many times. At numerous times, she, at 94 years old, has had to call me and say, please, can you help in this way? I really do think this would benefit Joe, and I can't do it. And I like, can't even call back the 94-year-old. And I'm like, can you do it? You know, like, but, and she's limited in mobility and a whole lot of other things. And she's not an enabler. And she, she speaks in beautiful ways and tough and beautiful ways to this man. But one time she just talks to me and she's kind of laughing about like, wow, it's been a long journey with this guy. And she said this. She said, oh, I would have given up on him a long time ago if it weren't for Jesus. It is so human to get weary when we have low return on love's investment. It's really hard to love ungrateful kids. It's really hard to, to, to love brothers and sisters that just you feel like want to bully you or take advantage of you. It's really hard to love certain kids in school. It's really hard to love certain people in the workplace. And you love and you teach and you pray for your kid and still ends up in detention your coworkers still think Jesus is a joke. Your marriage still struggles. It's hard to love. Bethlehem teaches us, even though when we have invested so much love, that his supply in us and through us continues. Paul called it his life being poured out like a drink offering being poured out. The, the image is just kind of a poured over the altar. It's not like a careful, let me organize this this way, and well, they did this, well, I'm not going to really do that for them, and I'm going to do this. Well, unless they talk to me first, I'm not going to. It is a pouring out of love for which we need endless supply. To love is to participate with God. To love is to be a part of the upside-down world in our midst. To love is to believe that God of love really does exist. He really is here, really is infinite in his supply. To love is to remember that Bethlehem was not chosen for its potential. Bethlehem was chosen not because it was a treasure in the making, but God deemed it just as it was a treasure already. We're heading into Christmas. There's a really, really a lot of opportunity and in this season. There's, there's spaces where your hearts are open that, that don't really get opened at other times. There are walls and boundaries that you put up that, that you, you secure that you, you don't always have to at other times. There's fears that get triggered that are triggered especially around this time to which my prayer simply is this. That in the trappings, in the excitement, in the good, 
in the hard, that you might have new spaces to simply grasp how infinite his love is for you, how seen you are when you are seemingly forgotten by others, how, how much he cares when you feel embarrassed that you weren't able to provide enough at this time and how much his love can even be reflected in those who are caring for you at this time. If you would stand with me, I'm going I'm to read a blessing over you. I get weird with these things, so I got a chance to, uh, I write some things for Collingswood often and make them, endure them, reading, and they're reading this uh, very close to this time, actually. Uh, and I wanted to just read a blessing over you, but... But in order to do that, I want you to look at everyone to your right, okay? See that person, all right? I don't know why you're laughing at them already. <laughs> everyone to your left, take a look on your left. They're especially good looking over there. Everyone on your left. Some of you are having trouble with left, okay. All right, everyone behind you, that's the awkward one. You didn't know they were there the whole time. Behind you, look behind you. Oh my goodness, he's here? All right, and then the back of the head in front of you. It's, it's with this these dearly beloved people, the people you just looked at and the people who looked at you, what we did is an exercise of, of if, if we can capture the incredible, endless love and sacrifice that God has come to display, not to that one super spiritual person you saw but to give endlessly to each of us. And here is my prayer and blessing for you today. As we remember how he came, why he came, to whom he came, what he came to do, and lastly, where he came, we declare an Advent truth to one another. You are not what you own. You are not what you make. You are not the sum of your Christmas season joy or sorrow. You are not the image of those who disdain you or the fulfillment of your proud imaginations. You have been made into something so much more. Your greatest human truth, you are the very beloved of God. Go, beloved, and we wish you a Merry Christmas if I don't get to see you again. <laughs>